I'm thankful to be continuing with all of you in a passage that I find quite challenging here in the book of Philippians. It's a challenge that is at the same time a joy as we see the kind of work that God is doing in our lives and the kind of plans that he has for us. And so as we come to this great and precious word, let's also turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the message that you have given to us through your servant Paul, that in his life we see the power of your gospel. We see the kind of transformation that can happen in our lives. Even as we turn to you, as we come before you in repentance, there's also assurance, power, and strength to live in this world. And there is a power also at work in our own lives to make us the kind of men and women who are fit servants for your son, Jesus Christ, and who you call to come and dwell with you forever. And so as we come to this word, Lord, we pray that your spirit would also work within us, that your truth would transform us, that we would learn to live faithfully to your glory and our delight. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so we've been looking at the book of Philippians the last uh, two months or so. And here we see a very remarkable life. Paul was the apostle who was perhaps the most instrumental in the formation of the church. His writings guiding the life of the church and his missionaries' endeavors establishing the church. And in this first chapter of his letter to the Philippians, what we see is that Paul gives us the foundation that was established in his life that enabled him to serve God in such extraordinary ways. Through the trials and persecution that Paul experienced, that foundation that God had laid in Paul's life enabled him to function in a hostile and harsh society, and not only to function, but to live with both peace and joy. And this foundation that God establishes in the Christian's life is laid through that process of what we call sanctification. And this sanctification that goes on in our lives is far more important than anything that we might achieve for Christ. And this is because there is a tension that we have seen all the way through this book of Philippians. And that tension is between the reality that God does not need you or me. And that all God has purposed will come to pass, whether we desire it or not. But at the same time, there are very real choices that God presses upon us to make. And these choices have very real consequences. And that it is through our choices, our acts, our decisions, that God brings all that he has determined to pass. 
And we see this tension in the foundation that Paul has in his life, that foundation that he has that enables him to thrive in situations that would totally debilitate the natural man that does not have the Spirit of God. And even as I have been going through this passage in the last number of weeks, and as Elder Gordon led us through uh, the preceding passage last week, I know that there's a great challenge for me in this passage in a way that God would work in my life in a way that would delight Irene and my children. Because if I lived with a kind of trust and confidence that Paul had, I would be a far better husband and father. And so what is it that Paul shows us about this foundation that he has laid for joy and peace in his life? Well, first we see, can I get... There we go. Do I? Oh, you're you're just doing it for me. Okay. <laughs> Is there? Oh. Oh, there we go. Okay. And so in verses 12 to 14, where Paul talks about what has happened to him working to advance the gospel, we see that Paul has a confidence in the sovereignty of God that frees him from the fear of persecution. And so this is not a guarantee that Paul will not face persecution, but rather that in the persecution that he faces, God will accomplish his purposes. And so if Paul's goal is to proclaim the gospel, and that is God's calling in his life, the mere fact of imprisonment will not cause God's purpose to fail in Paul's life. And so he sees that his imprisonment results in the opportunity to bring his testimony to the guards and authorities while also serving to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to answer the call to proclaim the gospel. We also see that Paul has a confidence in the greatness of God that frees him from envy and jealousy. And so while Paul has been in prison, there are those who preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry. And yet, Paul is not then downcast and defeated by those who would oppose him. But rather, he finds delight and he, says rejo he rejoices because whether from good intentions or not, the gospel continues to be proclaimed. And so there is a greatness to Paul's purpose. There is a majesty to God. So that when Paul sees that God has been exalted and his son's gospel has been proclaimed, he rejoices. And yet, even as Paul is not focused upon a concern for his own well-being, we see that goodness of God assures that Paul will not be one who will lose out, who will miss out because of the kind of opposition that he faces. And so Elder Gordon brought us last week to Paul's great principle that brings together these three foundations in the life of Paul, where he says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. And Elder Gordon led us last week to consider three questions that lead us very well into our passage today. He asked the question, how did Christ live? And looking ahead in the book of Philippians, we see that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of the servant and humbled himself to death on a cross. And this life of Christ, though he humbled himself and became a servant, resulted in the glory of God. Elder Gordon then contrasted that with how we live. And in contrast to the way that Paul lives, we can see that many of us are bound in many ways to the sinful nature. When we face persecution or difficulty, when we face the gossip, the envy, the persecution, the rivalry of others, that our sinful nature governs how we respond to that. And we can be defeated by these things. But in Paul's case, he sought the best way to live. And uh, if you remember from last week, Elder Gordon gave a, a very interesting illustration about marriage counseling that I thought was a very interesting technique. And if you remember, there was a couple that he was counseling. And this couple had experienced a painful episode in the past. And it was epi an episode where, as Elder Gordon was trying to prepare them for marriage, he realized that, in this case, the wife, just could not forgive the husband for something that had happened in their past and would continue to bring this up. And so at one point, he's, he left the room and he said, you guys, when you come out of this room, you either have this issue worked out so that it'll be resolved and you don't bring it up again, or I will not marry you. <laughs> and uh, he had a, perhaps some courage in doing that, but what he was looking at in this particular situation was that this couple's desire, there was a greater good that they were looking forward to, which was that desire to be married and their love for one another. And because that love and that desire to be united together in marriage was greater than the hurt that, uh, in this case, the fiance was holding against uh, the one to who she was engaged to be married, then she was able to let go of that. And the couple was able to resolve this. And in a like way, if we as Christians see this higher purpose, if we see the glory of God, and we understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth any sacrifice that we might make, then we too might be able to follow Paul in saying, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that leads us into then this question of how we are to live in this Christian life. And so in a certain way, our entire passage today deals with the application of these principles. We've seen these principles active in the life of Paul and how Paul lived in a particular way, not defeated by persecution, not discouraged by the opposition of even those who were within the church, and yet confident at the same time of God's good purpose in his life. And so as we continue on from verse 21, we see that Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so in this passage, we can see four characteristics that keep Paul grounded upon this foundation that has been lived uh, by, sorry, (laughs) the foundation that has been established by Christ. And we see that those three confidences that Paul has leads him to be free to devote his life to the glory of God and to the blessing of others. And so there are two choices that Paul is weighing that are set before him. And that choice is between life and death. Now, the choice is between a fruitful life and a gainful death. And this is not the way in which we usually look at this kind of choice. When Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but, is, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And he says, preceding that, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What was this life that Paul was leading? And certainly there was a way in which Paul's life would be very challenging for any of us to live. I can recount to you uh, from 2 Corinthians a little bit of what this life involved. And if you looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, you will see a number of the things that were involved in what Paul calls here his fruitful labor. And so Paul here is talking about how he is a servant of Christ. And in comparison to others with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak, who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. How many of you would choose that kind of life? And yet here, Paul casts this life as a difficult choice. The choice is between one great desire and another. Two wonderful things. And as we think about receiving these kind of lashes, that kind of imprisonment, being in storms where you're shipwrecked three times. I've never even been in one shipwreck. Uh, even there, we had a storm here in Pittsburgh a number of weeks ago, and I remember the, the trees swaying, the wind blowing, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is quite something. And that even raised in my anxieties, uh, my heart some anxiety as I was looking at this tree and I was thinking, I wonder if this is going to fall in the house. Um, 
And that's not a shipwreck. <laughs> but this is, when Paul looks at this kind of life, he says, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Because what he has seen is that throughout his life, it is through his trials and tribulations that God has worked. And he desires to continue in that. And he sets against that what he calls the gain of death. And uh, I really liked a quote that Elder Gordon gave us last week where he said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. And I thought, that's very intriguing. What? Let's tease that out a bit. And, and one person I think might have experienced something a little bit like that in the last number of weeks is our own Pastor Adam, because you know that he actually had had his uh, wife, Louise, and his two daughters away in Alaska for several months. Uh, that's quite a long parting. And I know that uh, his heart was yearning for them, and, and he did see them on video, I think, almost every day. And yet, at the same time, I'm sure that when he flew out to Alaska and saw those two precious girls and his beloved wife, there was great longing in his heart that was satisfied. And here Paul talks about his longing to see Christ. And I'm afraid that in my own life, I look far too often at the things of this world, my family here, uh, the friends, the times I can enjoy. Uh, just this last week, um, I saw Jackie two days in a row for several hours. We, we, we uh, had two meetings that went into the wee hours of the morning. And uh, it was just this desire in my heart. I, I, I've gotten to that age where if I don't get enough sleep, I'm kind of a wreck the next day. So Jackie, you kind of wrecked both my uh, Thursday and my Friday. But it was hard to tear ourselves away. Because I knew, like, you know, after this week, we're not going to see her that many times. And uh, she was one of the first people uh, that I met here at PCC and one of the first people I was working together with because she was leading worship. And so uh, we were having multiple uh, uh, Zoom conferences when we were living in Illinois. And then we got here. It was wonderful to see her. And she's become such a precious sister. And we served together, actually, in many areas of the church, together on the missions committee, together in worship. And then uh, she's also helped us out in a lot of different planning uh, events. And it's going to be a sadness for her to be moving on to serve the Lord in other places as she continues in seminary. Uh, but there's that longing that I have for Jackie because I can see her. But ultimately, what I have to see that what I love most about her is what has been created in her by Jesus Christ. And the fullness of that is with him. And so oftentimes when we think about heaven, we think about, well, you know, oh, I can't wait to see my sister again. I can't wait to see others that we've lost, that we miss. But when we actually one day see our Lord and Savior, he will be the one that we finally discover that we most long for. He will be the one that we delight to see. And so Paul here says, it is better, far better to depart and be with Christ. But now he has these two things set against one another, this life where he desires to see Christ, and yet he knows that if he remains here in this world, nothing, not the opposition of the government, not the opposition of others within the church, will hinder the fruitful labor 
that God has set before him. And that's the kind of confidence that we all ought to have in Jesus Christ. And so what are some of these characteristics that we can see ground Paul in this confidence where he can see these two choices before him and desire both, but then seek after the blessing of those in the church? We see his love and desire for Christ. As the quote says, he is thinking most of the next world and seeing the glory and the goodness of his Savior, Jesus Christ, and desiring to come to him, and in desiring to come to him, then turn and desire to seek his glory so that the fruitful life that he would live for the cause of Christ is what he desires. And then there's the confidence that Paul has that his sacrifices have worth. And so here's that tension again, right? Because God is sovereign. Will he fail to achieve anything that he has purposed to achieve? And the answer is no. God will accomplish all that he desires. And yet at the same time, Paul is confident that every sacrifice that he makes is a necessary one, is one that is integral in God's plan that will not fail to accomplish its purpose, so that his decisions, his determination, his sacrifices for the cause of Jesus Christ are meaningful, are necessary, and accomplish God's purposes for the church. And because of this, he keeps his eye focused on what he knows is God's purpose. And so, you know, oftentimes people wonder, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here for? And I can tell you what you're here for. If you're a Christian, the purpose of your life is your own sanctification. And as you work toward your sanctification, what you will desire and what you will increasingly work toward is the blessing of others. And we see this very truth in Paul's life, as he says in the earlier part of the passage, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And in God's work of sanctification in his life, Paul then turns to the reality that for my continuing with you will result in your progress and joy in the faith. And because of this, Paul looks at the brothers and sisters in the church, and he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so here we see the life of a man who is so committed to God, who has such a clear vision of Jesus Christ that enables him to stand firm through the kind of trials that would certainly shipwreck the spiritual lives of many of us. But I want to give you today another example of someone living that kind of life who, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and you say, I don't know that I would live like that. And so what is to become of me? And I have here a story of a person perhaps in just such a kind of situation. 
And so uh, please bear with me. It's a little bit longer of uh, a story, but I think it really illustrates what we see here in the book of Philippians so well. And this story is about a missionary couple who back in 1921 went to the heart of Africa to serve the Lord. And this couple was called David and Svea Flood, and they went to what was then called the Belgian Congo. And so they went into the um, interior of that land and into a remote area where they tried to reach the people of the Congo for the Lord. And I take up here this story. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Ndolora, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. Uh, they went with another couple, and these two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Sevilla Flood, a tiny woman only four feet, eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. And, in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided that they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Sevilla Flood remained near Nadolora to go on alone. Then, of all things, Sevilla found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Ana. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Sevilla Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David's flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl and were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to remain in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area, and Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course, she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, 
all of a sudden, a photo stopped her cold. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, Sevilla Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight for a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to Nodolra long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of the young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how, after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that he gradually won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. Today, there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sevilla Flood. For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Ina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you, and it's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America. And within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the National Church, representing some 110 thousand baptized believers spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had heard 
of David and Svea Flood. Yes, Madame, the man replied in French. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. Sorry, that account really gets to me. <laughs> but I want you to see in here, uh, this is a picture of uh, actually Aggie going to uh, visit her mother's grave. But I love this story because in David Flood's life, I see something actually much more similar to my life than the life of Paul. Because there are many times when the suffering or the sacrifice that God calls us to make or the temptations that come into my life do defeat me. But we see that these principles, these confidence that Paul has in Jesus Christ are not only operative because Paul has such great faith. But they're also true for all of us who perhaps stumble many times, who lose faith, who lose confidence. And yet we can see that God continues to work in the life of this servant. And so there's one beautiful thing about the story of David Flood. And that beautiful thing is that God never gives up on his servant, that he continues to work for our sanctification. And at the end, it is only repentance that is required of us. And so just like the Apostle Paul, David Flood saw the purpose of God accomplished through his wife's sacrifice. He saw that in the evil of this world, God worked to bring salvation to many. And he repented of his own hard-heartedness and saw God's redemption in his own life. And so in the end, it is also that same confidence, that same faith, that same trust in God that David Flood came to, that the Apostle Paul proclaimed to us so many years ago. And so that is the challenge that I would lay before you today. How are you serving the Lord? Do you have confidence in his good purpose in your life, despite the hardships and the difficulties you may be suffering? Do you look to the reality of a God who has your best interests and is constantly working for your sanctification? And is there something where you need to repent of your own hard-heartedness to the Lord? Is there a bitterness in your life because of some hardship you may have experienced? And can you turn again to the Savior who loves you? And despite any hardship, any difficulty, the trials you may be suffering, can you turn, serve, confident in the goodness of your Lord and Savior who will never cast you away, who will never leave you, even if you should choose to leave him? And can you rejoice in his good purposes for your life? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God,
we thank you that at the end of the day, it is not our unfailing desire to praise you, but rather it is your unfailing pursuit of your people. It is the work of sanctification that you are doing in our lives that you might one day bring us to you. It is the fellowship that you desire to have with each one of us, that as we have confidence and turn and repent and trust in you, that you will in no way fail to receive us, because that is what you have been working for, the sanctification of our lives, the reality of the gospel, where we learn to turn away from our own judgment, our own self-seeking, and trust in your goodness and your grace, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.